Hello, and welcome to Decades Podcast Season 2. This is a podcast where three hosts and the occasional guest watch a couple of movies, one from a previous decade all the way back to the 19-teens, and one from the now times. And then we talk about movies, we talk about history, trivia, culture, society, and for Season 2, we get to talk about politics. And now, on to the episode. Just like my flock of sheep. We want to know what you intend to give away to the communists. He will bring destruction to our traditions. He looked in his heart and he thought in all humility how he'd like to try and change things. Rip off this city for a hundred grand? It's a a groovy thing to do. I propose to demand from the House the immediate removal of the President of the United States. It's time. They knew, and they let it happen, okay? It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been any of us. Hi, and welcome to Decades Podcast. My name is Deb Kuykendall. I'm Jacob Kuykendall. I'm Lance Kuykendall. And I'm Nicole Lester. Oh, and you will have noticed that we have a guest today, and <laughs> also Nicole is outnumbered to one. <laughs> Sorry. And today we watched a couple movies about journalism. I'm gonna loosely, perhaps, in one case. Question mark. <laughs> uh, and so we invited uh, my husband Lance to join us today because he has worked as a journalist. Hi, Dad. Hi. Can you tell us a little about your journalism background? Uh, yeah. Uh, so I studied journalism in college. Um, I worked for a series of small weekly newspapers. I worked for a smallish daily newspaper for a couple of years, several years. Uh, Then was a editor for a chain of weekly newspapers, community newspapers. And then from there went and worked in a uh, magazine publishing uh, for several years. So about a decade's worth of, of writing and journalism editing. Well, you didn't include high school. Nah. <laughs> oh, then I'm a journalist. Too. Yeah, gonna, everybody, everybody took a journalism class in high school. That doesn't count. <laughs> I took it from the same guy that did. <laughs> yeah, my son and my husband went to the same high school. Yeah, if you can believe that, it's hard for somebody like me to believe that because we move Army like Brad. every couple of years. But uh, they have lived consistently in the same area for most of their lives. Yeah, there's Mimi barking in the background. Yeah. So you may have some problems with the dog barking through this episode. Just uh, for for it's a little bit different because normally there's somebody out with her that can quiet her down. But everyone's in the room today. Mimi is our unofficial second guest, whether we like it or not. <laughs> Unlike Trila, who's always an unofficial guest, and we never like it. Mm-mm. Nope. Uh, so we watched two movies for this episode. We watched a movie called The Power of the Press from 1928, starring um, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Directed by Frank Capra, and it was uh, actually written by a woman whose name I can't remember right now. I think it might be Sylvia Levine, okay. who was yes. one of the highest paid women writers at the time. She wrote a lot of movies. Now, when you say highest paid women writers... <coughs> I can't... No. Nope. <laughs> okay. Don't ask me. <laughs> Look it up, folks. <laughs> yes, I'm sure she wasn't making as Ten, much as the men. But. $10 a week and a can of tuna fish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the second movie we watched was a little more serious... Uh, we watched Spotlight, which is about the Boston Globe investigation into uh, sexual predators in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. What year was that? That was 2015. 
and what was the time period that was being represented? 2002. Uh, 2002. Yeah, was remember because 9 oh, occurred. Right, 9/11 occurred in the, yeah mid movie right. while they were yeah the important part of their investigation. Mm-hmm. So uh, we need to synopsize Power of the Press. Yeah. I'm touching my nose because I don't want to go. Oh, <laughs> oh, Dad has to do it. <laughs> what oh, happened no. in Power of the Press, Dad? You know, that's an, inter- yeah, it's an interesting <laughs> movie. I was kept asking myself, what does this have to do with the Power of the Press? Now, there's more to talk about. So it, uh, let's see, a synopsis of the movie. Young cub reporter uh, looking for a break so he can get away from having to just write the weather report. He gets called to a, goes to a murder scene mm-hmm. where the, he's... The district attorney. District attorney has been murdered, but he has lost his, being a cub reporter, he's lost his press pass in a hilarious bit of hijinks and cannot get into the scene. Do they show why, how he lost that? Was that yeah. Looking oh, yeah. yeah, that guy that keeps bullying him throughout the whole thing. No. No, no, no he's he just on his hurry to leave and he crashed into a guy. Somebody just stole it? No, No. he just crashed into guys and papers went flying. Uh, And they accidentally got the wrong hat because, of course, his press pass was tucked into the headband of his hat. As it is in cartoons. (laughs) Yes, as it is in cartoons. Because being a cub reporter, he was going out to, he was sent off to get in a taxi to go to the murder scene, but he forgot to get the address, so he had to run back in to his office and ask Uh the editor where he was supposed to go. And then he was in an extra hurry, so he ran back out again crashed into someone, they swapped hats, and at that point, he no longer had a press pass, so he was not allowed in. But, <laughs> luckily, he happens to see a young woman escaping out a window from the scene. Yeah. Uh, and then, he... He gets her purse. Yes, he, he encounters her, gets her purse, he also encounters... A friendly, helpful stranger <laughs> who just yeah. happens to be hanging out outside the murder scene. Well, he was, his car, uh, the hood of his car was open. Yeah, he was he doing was something. Leering over the hood of his car. Right. Uh, who and I, now I can't remember. He informed him of who that woman was. Yes, mm-hmm. and that, and he gives him a theory of the murder too. Right. A theory. A stranger who is doing some car repair gives him a theory of the murder. <clears throat> the cub reporter dashes back and right yells, "Stop the presses!" <laughs> And writes up an entirely fabricated story based on uh, a source of a random stranger who was having car trouble and a girl crawling out a window that causes him to write a story saying that woman obviously murdered the <laughs> district attorney and she's... Oh, yeah, and she's the daughter of the mayoral candidate. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Which is going to cost him the... Uh, instantly costs him the election. Yeah, as the father of a suspected murderer, he's he's got <laughs> he no chance. No longer, he has no has chance. But you can tell he's a good guy because when he goes to the police station to pick up his daughter, he says, "I don't care about the election. I only care about my daughter." Right. Yeah, um, <laughs> but the daughter the next day obviously cares about the election. She comes to the cub reporter and says, "You have to retract this story. My, you know, I didn't kill anyone." And she starts crying because she's crying. The cub reporter assumes that she is obviously innocent. And demands that his editor print a full retraction of the story the cub reporter wrote the previous day. Oh yeah. So let me ask, since you you two are older and wiser than me, was there a time when if your if a candidate's child did a crime that they would not be elected? Was there ever a time in US well, politics when that you know, one? That's interesting. Um, I I was reading. I don't remember what I was reading. Actually, I was reading something. That was, oh, it was probably that book I was reading to you, which is also called The Power of the Press. So I read a book called The Power of the Press, Mm -hmm. which uh, talks about how political journalism developed from pre-revolution 
two about the Muckrakers, which would have been about ten years before the movie we just watched. Okay. Uh, but at the end, I believe it is at the end of that book, he talks about, it's either that or it could be an article I wrote, read. Um, <laughs> he talks about a, a, when it started becoming a thing for uh, scandals to affect political races. And it wasn't until like the 70s. That wasn't a thing yeah. until, in fact, it might even have been in the 90s. Uh, there was a particular guy who had a mistress, and that became big news, and so he lost Bill his election. Gary, no. no, Gary Hart. Yeah, it was, it was a Hart. senatorial race. Oh, oh, oh no, it was presidential. You're right, it was presidential. I can't remember the name of the woman, uh, but I remember they had incriminating photos on the on a boat called the Monkey Business. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. that was, that, was that the 80s, though? No. I would say, yeah, that was the 80s, and I would say that although that was an incident, I would it was not something that popped up as, as well, nobody's ever been concerned with, you know, scandals never made a difference in the past, but it was a scandal that did make a difference. It was a different kind of scandal, though. I mean, like the muckrakers, they mucked up political, they raked, they raked up, up, sorry, raked up. <laughs> they raked up muck, they raked up political muck, right. not... You know, not like he's got a mistress on the side right. or he's a drunk. It was just they did bad political. You know, they gave contracts and laundered mm-hmm. money and right. all that kind of stuff. Right. It was actual political graft and corruption as opposed to just something showing a person having low moral character. Yeah, I affairs or whatever. I was thinking of Jimmy Carter and his. Remember his brother Billy Carter, who was. Well, <laughs> here's what here's what flashes in my mind: uh, generic beer for some reason, and it wasn't generic beer; it was Billy beer. Oh, it was he Billy beer. He endorsed a line of beer. He his so Jimmy Carter, very moral man, and that was kind of his brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has he had a brother who was not a like, bit. Of, he's a bit of a fool. Yeah, a bit of a fool. He would get arrested for oh. things like uh, urinating in public or uh, nice. being drunk. Um, he just wasn't. Oh, those sound like better days. <laughs> yeah, he, he just wasn't uh, a high caliber. And people, I don't think anyone thought less of the presidential candidate because of it. On the other hand, that isn't really scandalous. It was just kind of a... What a doofus. Yeah, you well, have a really real doofus of a brother. But I was trying to think of, I was trying to think earlier than that of an actual scandal. Both my parents are making pained looks yeah. right now. <laughs> well, I was just trying to recall Nixon uh, accepting gifts. Gifts and bribes, and mm. gave his famous checkers speech, where he said, "You know, I've never my wife. You know, we live plainly. My wife wears a good conservative Republican cloth coat. Mm. She doesn't wear furs. And the only gift they'd ever received was their little dog checkers. And he'd be damned if he would return that. <laughs> you know, his children's yeah, his precious dog pet. Yeah, I don't can't think of one. It, people have always well, always it, it's been a a while that people have expected." A high standard. Every every politician until recent times could not say they used drugs mm-hmm. until Obama. Remember that was the big Clinton issue. Right. With, I, I did not inhale. Yeah, I I tried it once, but I didn't inhale, which is a which was really stupid at the time. <laughs> right, at the time. <laughs> huh. But before that, you couldn't. And even I'm today, a pattern here. There's no. I don't know that we've ever had a president that doesn't go to church. Mm-hmm. Even yeah, Mar- even really Mark go Zuckerberg to, goes to church now. Right. Uh, Does Donald Trump go to church? Well, they all they say they go to church. church. He goes to church religiously. He has <laughs> every Easter, every Christmas. He has spiritual uh, advisors who right. are there. Who tell his fortune. In fact, who is, which one of the candidates? Oh, uh, Rubio. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, he covers his bases. He goes to both a, a Catholic and a Protestant church. Oh. You know, because you got to cover... <laughs> Yeah, 
Sorry, I derailed this just because yeah, the <laughs> modern perspective of me is like, daughter is a murderer. <laughs> That's only a personal crime, not some right. sort of, yeah. you know, national treason type of crime. Right. I had a big argument with my uncle about that very, that very Your thing. Um, yeah, we, he he was visiting my parents, and he is very conservative Republican. Okay. We had an argument about which one was worse, Nixon or Clinton. Ah. You know, because they were both impeached, but you know, from my perspective, being impeached for having sex is not as bad (laughs) for a president as being impeached for for betraying the American people. That, to me, seems like a worse crime for a president to commit. And and what was, and his counter-argument was, I disagree? Yeah. Well, he was also, you know, he was Catholic, too, so the moral thing would have been more significant to him. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) Sorry, I'll, I'll let you guys finish your synopsis. <laughs> this one's going to have, I think this episode, I'm going to have a lot to say. So he, he writes, oh, he's, he demands a retraction, and the editor says no, and so he quits. No, he gets fired. He was going to, <laughs> he's going to resign if he doesn't get a retraction, and the editor says, you don't get to resign, you're fired. I think we should probably describe his character, too, because he is very, he has a very high opinion of himself as yes. a cub reporter yes. who wrote one story that is mostly wrong. Yes. He writes yeah. the weather report at the beginning. So, side note to the listening audience, uh, I was definitely in and out watching this because this today was also the counter-protest at Westlake for the uh, neo-Nazis and alt-right folks. Uh, and Karen is there protesting, and at the time this movie was going on, they were the police were flashbanging and pepper-spraying people and arresting folks with weapons and... All kinds of stuff, which is probably still ongoing at the time of this recording. Yep. This is what, August 13. 13. It's the day after the Virginia Charlotte's ruckus. Charlotte's Mills. Yes. And yeah. like, ruckus is probably. Yeah, let's like, like, second take. Ruckus is a good word. Uh, it's a terrible word. Ruckus, use. including murder. Including, yeah. yeah, murder and a couple of policemen died in a helicopter crash. Yeah. Let's just give yeah. perspective why I did not pay a lot of attention at points here. I was staring at Twitter like an idiot. Well, and also the movie didn't seem to take itself very seriously. No, no, no. <laughs> no, and I don't remember seeing anywhere someone dis- this being described as a comedy, but it was definitely it was, it had some yeah. comic yes. elements. Mm-hmm. There's a point where they oh at, at this point in the movie where he resigns, the the guy who's been bullying him and his friend, uh, they they haul him out and then they do a little dance and then he kicks <laughs> one of them in the butt from behind. <laughs> Yay. That's what this movie's about. And keep in mind the bullying that the uh, that I swear it was a sports reporter. It said sports on his desk. It seemed like it. That's what, that's the impression I got. He as well. uh, tried to trip him as he was walking by. Typical bully move. On the other hand, the the cub reporter mm-hmm. then does a little comic bit where he tips the guy's hat over his eyes, then unties his necktie, then like pats him on the cheek, and it's very Marx Brothers. Yes, <laughs> it's a very Marx Brothers all the way around. Yeah, no love, love, uh, and, and later mocks him by chewing gum like he chews gum and blowing smoke <laughs> in his face. So there's a little give and take. I don't know what. <laughs> well, he started it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that cover reporter's just a jerk. He shouldn't be bullied for it. Yeah, he's just an arrogant, ignorant jerk. Who's oh, no, bad at his job and Which, should be fired. The, uh, <laughs> Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was only 19 when he made this movie, by the way. Oh, I was. I had forgotten that that was Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Yeah, he doesn't look the way that we remember him no. because he's not. His face he's just is a not. little. Nicole and I are showing you Douglas <laughs> Fairbanks. Who? Well, 
Yeah, Doug- Douglas Fairbanks Jr. is the son of Douglas Fairbanks. Oh, now, of I'm, course. I'm That's sure you've famous. heard of Swashbuckling, right? Yeah. He was a swashbuckler. Is he the guy who can slide down a mast Darn with right. a uh, knife? No, I, isn't, Darn that, right. isn't that Errol Flynn? I think they all both did it. Probably. They anyway. did their own stunts, and they were... And they swung from chandeliers. Look it up on Mythbusters. <laughs> That's what I know. By the way, whoever it was that would stab their sword into a sail and then slide down slide it. Down it's it. only known this from Which he also did in another movie where he stabbed his sword into a curtain and slid down it because that was such a popular move. The way they did that is he stabbed it in, cut the film, or stopped the film. They would then bolt on a large weight about the same weight as the person on the other side of the on the side of the sword you couldn't see mm. so that it was evenly balanced because mm. nobody has the hand strength to hold the sword <laughs> sure but it was a very popular move and it was used in multiple movies well it's very cool yeah we did skip over one fairly lengthy scene after he writes the story and they stop the presses they showed the entire process of how that story got uh, to the yes Yes, which I thought was really interesting because it really didn't doesn't carry the f- story forward, but big mechanical devices are always fun to watch, yeah. I guess. So we get to see them typing. We get to see all these guys typing and the metal plates being made and being put on the press and the paper going through. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that part. Yeah, and being sorted out and folded and handed over up, to the newsies. Who then run out <laughs> onto the street. Yeah, it was very. You know what it reminded me of was the old television show Lou Grant. That that's the way. <laughs> Shrugs. Oh. <laughs> well, okay. Hey, I'm but, glad you're here, Nicole. But you a, have yeah. heard of Mary Tyler Moore, right? Heard of, yes. Yeah. Mary uh-huh. Tyler Moore worked for Lou Grant, and after I think after the show, mm-hmm. some years after, then they took the Lou Grant character played and by Ed Asner. Ed Asner still acting in movies. <laughs> he played Santa in Oh, Scrooge. my Shrusher coming out. <laughs> he's yeah, okay. Man. He's Santa Claus in Elf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> With yeah. Will Ferrell, who's on Saturday Night Live. Oh, <laughs> that terrible show no one watches. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> in that show, it was a drama uh, about life in a newspaper, big city newspaper, and they would always start every show. The credits that would roll showed the process from someone finishing typing their story to it. It's basically that same scene of mm. it gets printed. Only modernized. Gets, right. For, well, it gets, sort of. It gets laid out. The presses <laughs> roll. The newspapers get stacked up. They get put onto trucks. The trucks drive away from the back of the newspaper. And the credits would end at the very end with somebody lining their birdcage with the uh, <laughs> <laughs> pages of the newspaper, which I always thought was just perfect. Yeah. It was the whole life cycle. I don't think we're ever going to get to the end of this movie. No. No. (laughs) All right. I'm just just going to stop asking questions so we can synopsize this and then ask questions. And I I think we should probably do a quick synopsis, not the full story. So basically, there's a murder. I'm going to take over. Yeah, take over. Mom, (laughs) get this done. There's a murder. He writes the story. He tries to uh, retract it. He can't retract it. He gets fired. He joins forces with... Uh, Jane Atwell, is that her name? Let me let me add to this. There is a scene somewhere in the middle here where you see the bad guy's plan. Oh, yeah. That guy he who gave him the story is the murderer. He was hired by the other mayoral candidate to frame the mayor's daughter for the murder to ruin his chances. Actually, I don't think that... No, I think, I think that was unintentional. Yeah, he killed because the DA. Because he had those documents that were going to do yeah. something, question mark? Yeah, no, that was never really clear, was yeah. it? Yeah, what, what they Wait were going to do. And I, I don't know if he was having an affair with that woman or what was the big deal, but whatever the DA had in that, all those pictures 
were bad for Blake, who was the other candidate. Well, I thought because I was distracted, I missed things. But apparently because I was distracted, I added to the plot yeah. to make it complete. <laughs> I was like, oh, there's a missing part here. I must Yeah, it, it was out. just because that's why he brags to Blake. He's like, wasn't it smart of me to plant that story? Oh. It was just a nice coincidence because the reporter The reporter out. walked by and asked <laughs> yeah. me what the story was. <laughs> and asked, who was that girl coming out, yeah. Yeah, jumping out well, the window? There were a couple of cinema, cinemagraphic, is that a word? Uh, cinematographic things that I really <laughs> liked in this movie, like just like seconds long. Uh, this, this is a silent film. This is a. <laughs> Did we clarify that? <laughs> yes, it is a silent film. She goes. She's taken by the police, and she gives her story of what happened, and you see it in a flashback. Later, she reveals to the reporter that she left something out, and you see the same flashback. Only now she's got the the folder with the photographs. It's the exact same scene. But you see, but with the new yeah. Now you see what she left out of the first time. <laughs> I like she that. being the daughter of the mayoral candidate yeah, who was accused of murder. Yeah, Jane. Jane. Because there is another female character <laughs> who I was really unclear what her part of this. Well, and as it became obvious, I think I, it was never clarified. She's the she was the photo in the file folder yeah. that was going to win the existing candidate or the existing mayor's reelection if only that information got out. Although it was never clear what. What it was, other than it's a photo of the woman. We do know that she was indicted for something. Yes, she had a criminal past. And I think it, the implication <laughs> is, that no, Dan, she, is that she is Robert Blake's mistress. Mm -hmm. And that it would be bad for people to know that he had a criminal mistress. Oh. Quite possibly. I think these, that's a good conjecture. <laughs> right, I'm just, there's some a, dots and I'm putting string right. between them. It, maybe in a better movie, <laughs> they would have actually clarified that to some extent. I will say, I think this was the this is the most entertaining silent film we've watched so far. Because oh, we actually laughed and paid I mean, attention to it. <laughs> I like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde just fine. But yeah. I, and I don't know if this is the appropriate time to mention this, but so Frank Capra, who had spent a long time, what was the fellow's name? The King of Comedy. Uh, Max. Uh, Max Sarah. Eddie Murphy. No, he he spent a long time working for a studio. He was a gag that made, man. Yeah, he was a gag man that made. What does that mean? Hold on a minute. <laughs> Hold on a second. So Frank Capra, he worked for a, a movie studio that did comic movies, silent comic movies, and he was okay. a gag man, which his job was to come up with the gags. Oh. And okay. you re I really, in watching this power of the press about a murder and political intrigue and the press. There was no shortage of silent movie Laurel and Hardy yes. style gags. Yeah. Sight gags, yeah. All the time, constantly. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, well, I see where he, this guy came from. <laughs> he can't help himself. He can't help himself. There's got to be a funny, there's a funny bit every couple of seconds. Yeah, when we get to Spotlight, there's very little gags <laughs> in that. Yeah, there's just not a lot of sight <laughs> gags. Nobody trips anybody in that newsroom. <laughs> there's, there's that one pie. <laughs> yeah. So long story short. <laughs> yeah, long story short. There was well, I saw there was another cinemagraphic. God, I hope that's a word. There was another I don't think it is. What what are you, what's the word for it? Movie magic. There was another scene. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was go. a camera trick. And it was when Van, who is the murderer, he goes into he goes through a doorway mm -hmm. and the camera swivels from one side of oh. him as he goes through the doorway behind his back. You you can't see what I'm doing with my hands, but I'm, just, <laughs> yeah. I'm doing the motion of the camera. It goes like Ooh. this as he goes it makes a, a semicircle around the back of him as he goes through the door. So you end up, you're behind him before he goes through the door, and you end up behind him after he gets through the door. And he closes it. And then he closes it. It was super cool. Yes. It was really cool. And that was something, you see that in movies nowadays. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
not super frequently, but that's a, a kind of snazzy stylistic thing you see <laughs> in movies. It's totally not what I would have expected. I would never have imagined that to have appeared in a silent movie. Yeah, because it's an unnecessary continuous right. shot. Right, it's very cool. <laughs> but it is, and most of the time when they do it now, they use CGI to blend right. those two together. You know, it'll pass through a keyhole, but it's a CGI door, right. so right. it can just cut two scenes together. Right. So that was kind of spiffy. There was also a really great uh, chase, car chase. Yeah, they went sixty they, miles an yeah, hour. They they made it they made it clear that they were going sixty to sixty five miles an hour in their and, model T's in their jalopies that were sliding all over the place on, on that road. Dirt. Yeah. <laughs> Near cliffs. Yeah. Uh, so what happens next, Mom? Well, let's just skip ahead. They're, the reason yeah. they have a car chase is because eventually the reporter and the reporter uh, joins forces with Marie, the mistress. I'm going to call her. Yeah. Uh, who? heard them plan the murder. She knows exactly who the murderer is. It's Van. And she knows that Robert Blake... Who's the, Van? We didn't talk about character names. Van's the murderer. The murderer. The murderer. Yeah, yeah. The, the sleazemo. Yeah. yeah, the guy with the pencil mustache. He, uh, mm-hmm. he, she Honestly. is a witness to their planning it. They get the drop on him when he comes to murder them both. Uh, but we don't get to see that because that's the lost footage from this film. <laughs> so basically you see them sitting at a table and he's, he's threatening them with a gun and making them write a note, and he's going to pretend that they've murdered each other, and then there's something missing, and there he is, he's tied up on the ground <laughs> with a gag in his mouth. And the gang's ill, and his thugs are here. Yeah, so. and his thugs arrive. And then they have a car chase. They are chasing after uh, Van Marie and Clem mm-hmm. is the name of the cub reporter. They are in the front car, and then they are being chased by three or four carfuls of bad guys. Shooting, bad guys at, shooting at them with their pistols. Yes. Uh, they who they elude quite easily, mm-hmm. and then they go. In, they don't go to the police. <laughs> they go back to the newspaper and say, "Stop, stop the presses!" <laughs> right. Stop the presses. Here's the murderer. Let's take a photo for the front page of the journalist of apprehending the murderer. Yes, and they take a picture of of them apprehending him. The end. And they uh, get married also, or whatever. Oh yeah, and then they get engaged. They don't say stop the presses. What? Every time he said, stop the, the press. press. They only had one press. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Sure. This movie also doesn't play, take place in any particular place, right? I kept trying to look for a city name or a name of the newspaper. The name of the oh, newspaper. They said the city. name of the newspaper several times. It's the Times. It's the Times. But it's not the somewhere <laughs> Times. Right. He's the mayor of something. Duckburg. Somewhere mayor. in any Times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a great movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, here's some... Here's some uh, Trivia. Frank Capra, this was his last silent film. Okay. Uh, the next movie he made was a, half, a hybrid of silent and talkie, and then after that it was all talkies. Oh, I don't want to watch a hybrid. That sounds terrible. <laughs> well, they, I think it was the outdoor scenes were silent, and the re- there's a reason for it, too, because the cameras were so noisy, they had to be inside a sound sort of soundproofing oh. box in order to capture sound without also capturing the sound of the camera. So they didn't have a lot of, they really couldn't move the camera around. Mm -hmm. And they had to be in a studio. So when they were outside, they used noisy cameras. So that part is silent. But when they were in the studio, they could... Soundproof. That still sounds terrible. (laughs) Uh, The the name of the movie, I think, is called The Younger Generation. And it is, some have suggested, maybe somewhat autobiographical. Okay. Um, Not Frank Capra. He said, no, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. But others have. Um, Frank Capra was an immigrant. He immigrated here uh, 
you just read the book, okay? He wrote, <laughs> he wrote his autobiography. It's yeah, called, listeners, you jerks. <laughs> it's a, no, but he's such a good writer. Um, the name of the book is The Name Above the Title. Okay. And it starts with a just an awesome story of his terrible, uh, his terrible experience immigrating here in steerage from Sicily. Ooh. And then his motivation, he actually was an engineer. He went to college. He was hmm. the only person in his family to go to college, and his family was not very happy about it because that wasn't, that wasn't something he respected at all. Yeah. Um, he was very patriotic. He volunteered for both World War I and World War II. Wow. So basically he got his degree in engineering, and his family was like, great, now you can get a job, you slob. And it's th- but then World War One broke out, and he said, "I think I'm going to join the military." And they're like, "What? You're supposed to be making money now." College. Um, so and he wanted to, he demanded that they send him to France, but instead of that, because he was an engineer, they made him a teacher. So he yeah. was teaching, I think, ballistics or something, to hmm. to recruits. Um, he got it. the story about how he gets into movie making is really funny. He just you should just read it. It's just really good. because he's it's Frank Capra. He's good at writing stories, <laughs> and he had an interesting life. So yeah. it's a it's a well written, a weird and interesting life full of crazy stuff, and he writes about it well. And he had a he had a string of movies. Hi guys, sorry for the interruption, uh, and no, this is not an ad for parachute cheats. As you may have already guessed, at this point in the recording, we experienced some technical difficulties, which I didn't discover until I started editing the episode. So on the downside, we lost a few minutes of recording. I don't think it was very much. That said, I figured I needed to jump in here and explain why all of a sudden it jumps to Jacob mid-sentence at the beginning of his synopsis of Spotlight. I also thought I should probably fill you in a little bit uh, about what we were talking about uh, during the missing few minutes of audio, uh, because we refer back to this conversation later in in the podcast. So in The Power of the Press, there's a scene where the cub reporter and the mayor's daughter have gotten hold of a folder of incriminating photographs, and they are comparing these photographs and sort of connecting the dots of the crime by looking at this photograph and that photograph. And we compared that scene to the scenes in Spotlight where the journalists are painstakingly going through catalogs that detail the appointments of Catholic priests to one parish or another, or in some cases, they're designated as being sick or, you know, some other mysterious absence. Um, and that, that's really about it. So I'm going to let you get back to the episode. And uh, here's Jacob. Played by Lee Schreiber. Uh, plays Marty. I forget his last name. Um, he's coming in. He's the outside guy. Michael Keaton is the head of the, the editor for the Spotlight team, which does long long-term investigative reporting. Um, everybody's nervous that this new guy's going to come in. He's going to do a bunch of layoffs. Uh, Michael Keaton meets with... Uh, I can't remember Michael Keaton's character's name. Mike Walter, I think? Walter something? Just on Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton. <laughs> Michael Keaton meets with Liv Schreiber. They talk a little bit. Liv Schreiber looks through their recent publishings and finds that there was an article about a pedophile priest who'd abused some children in Boston and was concerned that they did not do a thorough enough investigation. He says, this is a story. You guys, Spotlight, put put aside what you've been working on. I want you to focus on this. Did you mention that he's the new editor and he's Jewish? He's Jewish. He's from Florida. Everybody's a little leery of him because he's not Catholic and because... He's not Boston. And he's not Boston. (laughs) And this is, they tell him this is a local paper. We have local concerns. 
um, the Catholic churches all over the place. They the cardinal is the cardinal meets with him. I'm trying to I don't remember what his cardinal position is. Law. Cardinal <laughs> law meets with him. Um, they begin invest. I mean, basically, they begin investigating this uh, pedophile priest named Geogen. Geogen. I'm not, I could not. It's it's spelled like G O G E O G H I N. H A N. I know I was watching the whole thing with subtitles, but Geegan. Geegan, Geegan, Geegan I think, probably. yeah. Uh, they begin investigating this and talking to a um, leader of a victim's organization and basically slowly piece together, well, okay, there's this priest, but actually there have been multiple priests in the past. First, they think there's three that they can find articles that have been published about. Um, Michael Keaton has a connection to the law firm that represents the Catholic Church in Boston who is very dicey and, and kind of cagey about what's what's been going on, why things are... So they dig into this. They find evidence that actually there might be 13 priests involved with this. Um, Isn't that the number that the SNAP guy gives him? I is think snap, so. Right? Yeah, SNAP. Um, so then they begin investigating... There was a scene at the beginning that was like the 50s, though. Right at the beginning, there's right. a small boy in in the police station. Oh, and his mom. Right, so that's oh, it's a right. little it's important because it tells you it gives you the kind of the length of time, right? And I'm I assume that's and why it, they and it showed the behavior of because the, there's another cop, there's the desk cop, then there's another cop who oh, says, "Oh, are they going to bring in? You know, is this guy going to be arraigned?" He's like, "Oh, there's not going to be an arraignment." Yeah, no way. And you see the some higher up priest comes in his. Lincoln Continental and goes in, talks to the woman, talks about how sorry they are, and it would you know you got to protect the church, and then takes the priest away, and they drive away, and there's no police report, there's no nothing, nothing. It's this Fair. thing was brought up and and squashed. disappears, yes, and then everyone kind of like oh yeah, that's the way it goes, mm -hmm. that's how it works. So the plot, I mean the plot is very simple. They begin investigating this first. There's one priest, then they have evidence of three then 13, then they begin um, talking to a researcher into this Tom who spent 30 years studying child abuse in the Catholic Church. He was a former priest mm -hmm. who married a nun. Yes. And, and is also a psychotherapist. They, he suggests, well, it's about 6% of all priests, so that would put you around 90 priests in the Boston area, and they're like, that's ridiculous. And then they begin investigating that story and find here's 87 priests, um, I'm skipping, I'm going to go through the plot and then maybe double back and talk a little bit about the story beats here. Uh, they begin investigating these priests. During this time, 9-11 occurs. They're basically pulled off the story to investigate 9-11 related stories for they a also, while. They become aware that there are uh, court documents that are sealed that yes. would be very useful for them to have. And also they're dealing with the lawyer. Um, there's there's uh, three lawyers in this movie. The lawyer who's, who's bringing the 80... He's bringing 84 suits. Yes. Individual Gir Garibaldi? Girara? Yeah, probably Garibaldi. The, the Greek last uh, name that I can't that remember. actor's name? Tucci's dad. Tucci's yes, yes, yes. Ah, oh, Stanley Tucci. Um, <laughs> they, so they, he is, rep Stanley Tucci plays an attorney who's been representing a lot of the victims. There is an attorney for the Boston Globe who's working to unseal some documents that they think are, contain information about the, uh, basically names of priests who've been implicated in this. Uh, more importantly, the cover-up. And the cover-up by... It was by, by higher yes. than just the local, you know, churches themselves, that it comes from leadership. 
there is a discussion between the editors about whether their focus on the short story should be the law firm that has been settling these cases out of court to cover them up or the systemic abuse by the Catholic Church and the cover-up basically by the church. Um, they keep investigating it. They find eventually find multiple sources for all 87 priests, um, and they publish the story. Uh, and uh, there's also a point where Stanley, the Stanley Tucci character... Uh, gives the Ruffalo character <laughs> yes. uh, a clue because he had done some sort of legal maneuvering that attached some of the documents. The like, documents they're trying to unseal right. were attached to a public record. But it was only a portion of them, but he said it was the most the yes. most salient pieces of information at, which had been made public. Right. Um, and there's some excitement. That's like the most exciting part of the movie is when Ruffalo yeah. is running to get the documents. To get I gotta get there before the office closes. And then it closes. But he gets there in the morning anyways. And then he runs another place. He runs a lot of places. Um, and they publish it. Uh, and then victims start coming forward. The end. <laughs> um, in real life, they win a Pulitzer Prize. Um, and the movie ends with a pretty horrifying uh, st- yeah, statistic and also list of other places where that were affected that were affected which is hundreds yeah. internationally yeah a hundred a list of a hundred places worldwide i was looking for washington places of which there were several yeah. um Both seattle and spokane and, and yakima like, and uh, we're made. <laughs> um so that's basically the story or that's the plot they the story revolves mostly around the five journalists at the Boston Globe, and they're all sort of individual. Each of them is basically working on a different part of the story and has their own relationship to the church or what's going on. Because they're all Boston Bostonians. Bostonians? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Except for Lee Schreiber. Yes. Uh, the outsider. Oh, and there's, a, there's this one part where one of the reporters is going through... We didn't talk about the scene that you... That you wanted to compare between the two, right? So there's oh. they, there's a period in the movie where they're all going through all these these books, and the books contain information about where the priests are or, located from one year to the next, mm-hmm. and they've the discovered directory. that when a priest is discovered to be a molester, they are it's signified by them being on sick leave, and then they find that there are some other code words also in the in the books, and so yeah. they are painstakingly going through years and years of books looking for priests on sick leave and constructing a database from this. And that was the scene that Lance was comparing to the scene in Power of the Press where they're doing the thing with the photographs. Holding two photos up next to each other. I've got this photograph and it matches this photograph. This was five different reporters all going through these giant phone directories of every priest and what parish they served and what year, you know, in that year they were at this address and at that year they're at this address. And it's all five of them having to, with little rulers and straight edges, going line by line by mm-hmm. line down through the hundreds and thousands of pages of the directories and circling every time they see the word sick leave. Mm-hmm. Or unassigned. Or unassigned. Uh, yeah. And then entering it into a computer. Yeah. Excel. Yeah. That's, that's right. It's the future now. Um, so we, we see the, there's the journalist. There's one who's working on the attorney who's representing the victims. There's one 
Uh, Michael Keaton is the editor. He's mostly talking to the attorney who represents the church, who's his friend. They also, Billy Crudup was also a lawyer in that same firm. No, he no. was the district he was the one who, attorney. No, he was the one who was settling the cases. Prosecutor? Without, no. He's without, just pulled in yeah, sometimes. He, he has a relationship with the church in that he sends the demand letter on behalf of the victims and they settle out of court so that there's no record for it. Gets the confidentiality agreement signed. So the victims have to have an attorney, and the church has an attorney, and the victim's attorney has basically a deal with the church, that they're going to settle these out of court for low amounts, and he's been, basically he's part of the cover-up. Although um, he does, at one point, he, they had actually gotten a lot of the information that they ended up getting that, that broke the story, they had actually gotten years before, and it, like, set it aside and said, this isn't a story. Well, one of the interesting things that kept coming up in the movie was how much influence the Catholic Church had, mm-hmm. um, both financially and then just in terms of um, tradition and how important it was both um, in how easy it was for the priests to abuse children because of how big the church was in the community and how, you know, the yeah. victims kept saying over and over that it's a big deal when a priest pays attention to you and, you know, your father is a deadbeat and, you know, it's it gives you a little bit of prestige and sort of makes you feel better about yourself and then the same thing going forward when um you know when they're investigating the stories that you know are you sure you want to get the church involved in this they will not be happy (laughs) to know that you're investigating them and you know it's just an interesting parallel that it starts from the bottom and sort of works its way it it pervades throughout the decades um in the whole boston area and probably more than that and part of that is in the movie and in real life um the boston globe had been given a lot of information about this issue what 20 years prior and had not followed up on it and the movie doesn't really take a stand as to why this happened they basically the michael keaton character is like i don't know why i didn't follow up on this i think it's because it's internalized you know he right. grew up in um, what was the name of the school bc the some, school across the street yeah, school across the street. From the <laughs> Globe. Yeah. yeah some catholic high school and you just sort of respect the church and if there isn't already a smoking gun why ruffle the feathers you know the other part that i don't think the movie addressed is they did they would write the story oh look 20 of these cases were settled oh well okay there's the story 20 cases settled and then they would bury they would bury it in the metro section that was their pattern right yeah but it was also kind of there there was no follow-up in terms of what was the cause of this what's being done in the church about this it was just oh look court cases yep that was the result of those court cases end of story and yeah. the, I mean, as they are taking these attorneys to task, one of the attorneys says, "Like I sent you a list of yeah, all these the, cases." It was the Billy Crudup character. Yeah. yeah, he had he had tried to whistleblow and it had failed, and then he had continued his place representing the church or helping settle these. Um, well, because they give him a hard time, they're sort of like, "Yes, you're protecting these abusers. You know, how dare you? Don't you feel responsible or bad for this?" And he sort of has finally had enough. He says. I did something. I told you guys about right. this. You buried it. You didn't follow up. You know, like, we're all culpable in this. This yes. is a big deal. Um, and the movie also takes some time to show the, I mean, basically how all the reporters are dealing with the fact that there are predators in their community. You know, one of the guys, they, they explain how there are therapy houses for these church, for these priests to unlearn their ways. And he, one of the reporters finds that there's like the houses across the street from him or down the street and he can't tell anybody that there is a house full of predators so he puts up a picture on his fridge with a sign next to it that says 
for his kids, you know, don't go near this house and don't talk to the men in it. Yes. Um, and there's also a scene where Michael Keaton, well, Michael Keaton finds out the one of the priests that was at the high school when he was at the high school, who was a coach there, uh, is one of the priests on the list. And I don't remember how he finds out that his friend was molested. I don't remember how he made that connection, but he... he I think he was... I think it was something that he knew that his friend was on the hockey team. Was on the hockey team. No, I think he was on a list that somebody gave him. He was some name. Oh, he does see the name, and then he looks at his yearbook and goes, "Oh Oh, yeah, that's the guy." And then he goes to pick that guy up for for a drink. Yeah. And is like, "Hey, I want to interview you." And the guy's like, "I know what this is about. You know, I I get it. I haven't told anyone." He, t- he says, he says I want to talk to you about Father, whatever the guy's name is. And he says, yeah. how did you find out? This, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a pause here so I can edit this out if necessary. This reminds me that when I was in college and my friend Daniel from Third Act Saviors was at Gonzaga, his, his roommates had a, one of the priests was their friend, and he was later found out to be a abuser uh-huh. and fired and removed from the church. Um, but this was somebody that Daniel and his roommates had had, like, would come over and bring them a bottle of wine and all hang out. Um, but was like, this is this was pervasive as of whatever year I was in college. Right. A lot of people don't know that Gonzaga is a Catholic school, so you might want to. Oh, the <laughs> big that. private Catholic school in Washington, probably the biggest one. Of. One of Catholic college. Yes, yeah. the biggest. I mean, much bigger than SU uh, alumni wise, but. Also, it's pronounced Gonzaga. Gonzaga. I think they their basketball team did real good or something. Well, they were, they're a really good basketball team. And they kept calling it Gonzaga. From Spokane. From yes. Spokane, yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, that's not how you say that word. But that was somebody who I had never met personally, but was like very common while I was in college to be like, oh yeah, we're, you know, we, the priest came over and we hung out or talked to him and, and he was caught, I think, downloading child porn or something. Mm. He was caught with some sort of child pornography and given the boot during in, a year after I graduated college let's say um, so this is still going this is 2007 <laughs> let's say yeah ongoing uh, issue years after this scandal was I don't know if it's even fair to say scandal systemic failure yeah. abusing children well I would say that it started long I mean it's I would say it's the story in the movie starts in the 60s, the 50s, right. how far back this goes in just one area. To all the way? Yeah. I'm going to say it goes all the way back to the beginning <laughs> of <laughs> having a church where you tell people they can't have sex. Well, but, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, they even there's a, a scene in the movie where they're talking on the telephone with that researcher mm-hmm. who's basically like, oh, well, it's about 6% of all priests, and this is the way it is, and it's part of that whole, and he, he blames celibacy, yeah. and... Even if the church responds differently, that doesn't. Even if the church were to respond differently and say, "Oh, we're going to yank these people out and they never get to go anywhere," if still, if every six percent of all new priests fit this category, yeah, you can have an ongoing issue for. But he also, I mean, part of that he says the secrecy. They are not right. allowed to have sex. Fifty percent of them are not celibate because of that. Because they are in a system where this can be covered up. Right. Things go. Very haywire, very well, quickly. Well, also because they are in a religion that tells them certain, you know, that they can and can't do certain things. It's a strict religion, right? Yeah. So they're... A lot of them are. They're, <laughs> yeah. But this one is one of them. And so their needs have to be met, but they don't want to break the rules. So they make up weird 
psychological, you know. Justifications. Yeah. They have to do psychological acrobatics to satisfy their needs, and it doesn't come out yeah, well. Yeah, there was a scene in the movie, and I don't know how accurate this is. I don't know if this oh, yeah, is based is on chilling. actual, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> an actual conversation, but one of the reporters, uh, played by Rachel McAdams, um, is going around looking for some of the old priests um, on their list and finds one uh, at a residence and asks him about it, and he's very just sort of not phased at all. Yeah, you know, when she like, says, Yes, have, I molested those we, children, sure. Yeah, we have reports of you molesting these children. And she says, Sort of, yes. Uh, and like, as, as in, what of it? Yeah, and, I didn't rape any yeah, of them. And he says, You know, but I, he wants to make it very clear that it was okay because he didn't receive any sexual gratification from it. Right. That it just occurred, but it wasn't about pleasure for him. As if he's been told over and over again that this sort of mitigates it. And it's, it is chilling. It's yeah. sort of, yeah. wow. I mean, he comes, he's a former priest, but he also comes across as, like, severe mental issues, <laughs> the way that he responds to her, and then the priest's uh, sister comes to the door and basically says, get out of here, don't talk to him. And then they pan across the street, and they live across from what looks like a school. Yeah. 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 Right. So, <laughs> that's the spotlight, I think. Uh, I was going to say, you know, there's the one scene where, uh, uh, I think it's, uh, I don't know, Ruffalo is in the is at the lawyers the lawyer gets one of the victims to come in and speak to him he's a grown man mm-hmm. um, that is his the what he said is almost verbatim what a victim actually said and it was in the article I read the article I read the first oh, article okay um, the the story about the ice cream mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. verbatim okay I so having said that having gone through the synopsis um, I did a little. I did a little bit of poking around for facts about the movie. Um, one of my questions, just because it's something I'm, I'm interested in, is basically there's this movie is exclusively white people, top to bottom, almost without fail. And I was trying to figure out, okay, was that accurate to who was involved in this story, and is that accurate to the scandal that it was portraying or the, the events it was portraying? I mean the. Boston, the reporters were almost all white except for Res, Resnevda's, um, Mark Ruffalo's character, who was a Hispanic guy, but in this movie is played by Mark Ruffalo. But he's Portuguese, right? Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Portuguese. Um, I could not find any, like, I didn't do a lot of research, but I couldn't find a good sense of whether this, at least in Boston, impacted communities of color. It's Catholic, it's Boston, so I'm like not really sure, but I couldn't find anything specifically on that topic. I did a little research into that too. Like I looked at what is what are the demographics of Boston, because yeah, it was pure right. white movie. Uh, although there was a there is a scene where someone is interviewing a policeman and he is black. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, there were are a couple of other side characters, not even side characters, probably background characters. Yeah, who I are mean, people of color. Maybe a minute minute of total screen time, let's uh, say. Right, but if you scroll down through the cast, which is probably I don't know forty or fifty people yeah. in this movie Huge. with with a you know with a t- title on the mm. in the credits, I think there's like three or four African Americans. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. There were some. I think that the well, I was the assistant for Gab, whatever the yeah. uh, the lawyer that's defending the the, the victims, mm-hmm. whatever his name is, Garibaldi. I believe she may have been Latino. I think so. I'm curious. I mean, what I, the thing I wanted to know was I meant Latina. 
right? <laughs> it depends. <laughs> um, I was trying to figure out was were there communities of color impacted by the pedophile priests? Obviously, right. in real life, there were, and in fact, that list at the end of the movie contains a lot of countries that are not in America. Right. I'm just curious whether in Boston the Catholic communities include communities of color, partly because I would think if the priests were abusing disadvantaged children without parents and all this stuff, like that would be a place that they could target, well, would be my guess, not knowing the, anything about Boston. The demographic that I didn't spit out, Boston, I don't know what it was at the time, but it's not that long ago, it's only yeah. like 15 years ago. Uh, right now, it's 25% African-American, right. which is a pretty high percentage. That sounds about right. I mean, it's, a, it's an urban area. Right. What's the percentage of African-Americans in Catholic, Catholic Church? Catholic, right. 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 As compared to the Irish, because yeah. Boston is also massively Irish, yeah. in, and right. they're Catholic. Well, I would also, my curiosity would not necessarily be the African-American community, but I assume the Hispanic community oh, sure. is probably largely Catholic in Boston. Yeah served by the same church and the same right. many of the same priests there are catholic you know there are ethnicities where catholic is the right. tr- main religion that are not white so i'm right. curious like was that and part I think of this they are, that is about 12 percent of the population i believe okay i mean that's that's i assume yeah. the main that character mark ruffalo plays is catholic because he's from a country that i'm sure his parents were catholic um that doesn't come up in the movie i thought that was noteworthy let's say right i couldn't see i couldn't find anything online one way or the other so i just left that as an open question to our listeners mm-hmm. um but i thought that was interesting they mentioned briefly i mean there's basically no very few women in this movie either but they mention that the priests basically would all, would molest whoever was convenient was kind of their right. mo so it was mostly boys because that was who they had more access to basically not not you know they they kind of dismiss bring up and dismiss like they're not homosexual priests they are predators who are targeting whatever is convenient which makes this mostly targeting young men stated that correctly (laughs) yeah yeah because he actually he talks about that is that that researcher who basically says yeah it's not they're going after whoever is available and vulnerable, and that is mostly boys because it's somewhat a segregated, yeah. uh, gender-segregated church. Yeah. Right. So that was all bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's your synopsis. Um, I was surprised how not... I mean, I expected this movie would be a giant downer, and it is, but the movie kind of takes it take, comes from a very far distance for the most part of depicting the abuse the topic of abuse is a big downer this was a procedural movie yes it no you know it's kind of like watching uh on order law, probably law and order right the, the the crime is this horrible thing but the the flow of the movie is all about action well and there were <laughs> yeah. there are a couple things about that the guy who made this movie whose name i can't remember the director who also wrote or co-wrote the script for this mm-hmm. he's i I'm pretty sure I read that he specifically wanted to focus on the importance of journalism, right? Yeah. Uh, so, because we're having a problem with that right now. Uh, mm-hmm. This was 2015, but, you know, and we're having a worse problem now than we were maybe a couple of years ago. It's but a it's different a, problem, but it's, it's a ongoing. problem, right? 
so he he wanted to focus on that, but it sounded like the way that they approached the story, they also, to some extent, they were focusing not on the victims. They wanted to focus on the systemic failure so that they could actually ha- impact. Because if you just focus on the victims, then the victims don't, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't mm-hmm. cure the issue until you expose the whole system right. that's causing this to occur. So that was the focus of their story. Right. And they, and they mentioned that, that they, you know, they had enough to publish to say, look at this bad priest and look at the bad things this priest did. And they're like, no, because he'll say he's sorry. The church will say, yep, we'll get rid of him. But and that's not. Yeah, it doesn't go anywhere <laughs> then, from there. Right. Well, that was one of the things that I sort of thought about when I was watching this movie is I was trying to think of what the modern day, I mean, I guess that's pretty modern sometimes as well, but um, is there an equivalent to the influence the Catholic Church had in that area? Is there another sort of force that's exerted on the modern day press? Sure. You know, sort well, of Well, uh, I'm not going to remember the names of any of the things, but there is something going on right now uh, where there is a big conglomerate that is... Sinclair Broadcasting? Is that yes, it? That's yes. It, and they have been allowed to purchase the majority of local... Stations. Mm-hmm. It's like seventy five percent nationwide now, or something. It's a huge. Right. Huge. Here in our area, it's Como. Yeah. And they push stories to those outlets, and they are right wing stories. They require that they play these things. There was one. I, I was reading an article today about one of those stories, which I think aired this morning, about why it is wrong to take away Confederate monuments. Mm-hmm. And this is the day after. A woman was killed by a Nazi who was protesting the taking away of Confederate monuments. The day after, and that's their story. Yeah, and one of the things um, that's sort of happened with that um, is how much power do the actual reporters have to combat this, you know? So I read a story um, that said that the reporters, the way they were combating this in their own way, because they had sort of limited power over Mm -hmm. what gets aired, is... Um, the time slots they were putting these stories yeah. in. They were trying to bury them in the least viewed areas and sort right. of um, like not give it their all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there a way of being subversive about it because they're being I remember I saw, yeah, I heard very similar, read very similar thing and that, you know, in places that are, that, well, like Seattle, mm-hmm. where they, that's the answer the editors have had is, oh, well, oh, if we're required to have this opinion piece and we're required to run this story, okay, we'll meet the letter of the law, we'll play it at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning, or whatever the thing mm-hmm. would be. Well, that's when the story played this morning. Yeah. Yeah. 6 a.m. on Sunday morning. Right. And I remember at the time thinking, well, okay, that's pretty clever, until your boss comes and says, now okay, now from now on, this needs to air at 5 p.m. prime drive time. And then, what, what do you do? do? Yeah, so what kind of power do they have to fight back? I mean, that was one of the things that was really lucky, I think, about the Boston Globe was, um, number one, it was mentioned that they have the financial resources to investigate this kind of story. Mm -hmm. Um, Number two, they went to the publisher and sort of ran it by him, and he didn't object. You know, he said, okay, we'll have the legal team behind you on this. We'll go to court and try and get these documents unsealed. And they were lucky that they had that support. Yeah. I like that element. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things. The new guy from far away who's not Boston, he's gung-ho about it. The, uh, and I can't, I don't even know the character's name. The, the silver, mad, the mad man guy. The silver-haired yeah. yeah, the yeah. silver-haired man from Mad Man. You could tell he was obviously uncomfortable with it. Right. He did not yeah. want anything to do with it. But when the story, be, he was willing to let it go to the extent of being investigated, and when the story came, he had, he recognized, mm-hmm. you know, 
he's a good Catholic. This is harmful. The community's not going to, you know, people are not going to like this. But this is the story. This is the job we do. And yeah. he, he went with that. But it's important to have the ownership backing because yeah. there's a lot of resources that are needed besides just pounding the pavement and getting the story. I mean, the I would say that the issue today is not, there's no church pressure on news. There's a combination of moneyed interests at political groups and right now the government. Uh, those three are, all three of them are probably putting pressure equal to, I mean, it's the Sinclair Broadcasting uh, aspect of private interests may have the pre- may have the level of power that the Catholic Church did in this. The government has uh, been making lots of attempts to modify or denounce journalists or articles that they don't approve of. Right. Um, and there's just an ongoing issue of the public's opinion of journalism and newspapers and news is so poor that even true stories are denounced because the quality of all the stories are so bad that it is very hard for individuals to separate wheat from chaff. Right. I, I, be, that's, I mean, that's, I think, forgive me, lies from truth. Right. Put well, it that way. And it is almost, in my opinion, scary at this point because we now have a president who is starting his own um, media yes. <laughs> outlet. He's, I forgot what he's calling it. It's not Trump News. It's something very, That's very similar to that. to that. I thought it was Trump TV. Trump TV, maybe, yeah. yeah. Where he's, This is where you get your real news from. This is where you know the true stories are. There is a website. I will look up the URL and, and add that to this, where um, a former FBI uh, intelligence oh, guy awesome. has, has a website where it tracks Russian Twitter bots and the articles and things that they, that they are pushing. There's like 14,000. This is the, here's the terrifying part to me. I believe it's 14,000 bots on Twitter that are tied to Russian government, uh, associations, which accounts for like 12% of all Twitter users are Russian bots. Um, and it, he has a website that tracks what are they, what stories are they pushing? What are the ta- hashtags and the web news sites that they link to? And you can go through that list of news links, which websites do they publish? And it's like a bunch of non, a bunch of nonsense websites I've never heard of. And then down at the bottom every day is Fox News and Breitbart. Right. Because that is, those are some of the most popular news outlets today, but news they're news. Yeah. News and quotes, but they are also the Russian propaganda and government, you know, government propaganda arms of our government right now. Right. And that was a huge issue during the election was the um, social media influence that was, you know, allegedly by (laughs) international influence um, pressing and pushing fake news stories to influence public opinion about the candidates. And even more so, I read this really interesting article in the New Yorker. Um, it was out in July. It was called The National Enquirer's Fervor for Trump. And yeah. it was about the owner of the National Enquirer who owns sort of some of the other gossip magazines like mm-hmm. OK and Us Weekly. And he's actually created this conglomerate <laughs> of yeah. those tabloid trash yeah. <laughs> articles and um, how he's enamored with Trump. And they're mm-hmm. very good friends. And he made a conscious effort to never publish anything disparaging about the Trump family, um, to push articles, you know, 
I'm not using this term lightly, demonizing yeah. Hillary. Um, right. You can see that at the yeah. grocery yeah. store right now. Yeah. And it, it was just interesting that they talk about how far-reaching those stories were, and depending on what they ran on the cover, how many more people bought them, and, you know, these mm-hmm. are millions of people who are getting just information this way. Um, and it's scary, not only that it's such an influence, but also because he's now interested in purchasing Time magazine. Right. which has a fairly good reputation. And right. so what could that influence then go to when you now move from tabloid journalism into what has got a foundation of a respected right. you know, paper? I mean, it, the Sinclair thing is scary because it you, it's insidious, right? right? The people watching don't know they're being fed political they propaganda. Right. They think they're seeing their local news, and what they're actually seeing is somebody's Agenda, right? Yeah, so, and and in some cases, like an individual's, like some guy, literally, literally, yeah. this is personally he what filmed, I think needs to filmed, be national news. He filmed like a segment that he wanted aired that was just him talking, yeah, about some issue. Um, the other thing that I wanted to tie into this is the the social media aspects. These, you know, the the Russian bots and all this, but there's. A, the you know there's like the right wing conservative side of this where you've got Fox News and Breitbart and these news in quotes outlets tied to our government and propaganda and then you've got what are often considered like left leaning computer companies you've got Twitter and Facebook and these social media franchises that in theory are have some sort of left leaning bias I mean that is the sort of general public opinion, but whose financial interests are lie on not touching what people like. And if what people respond to are right-wing propaganda, they have a very hands-off approach for probably monetary reasons. You know, Twitter gets... Down, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, it comes down to what responsibility do they have? to limit these things, you know, are they now a form of journalism because they're a format for people sharing these stories? Do they have sort of an editorial responsibility to make sure that accurate information is shared? It's mm-hmm. something they've never had to deal I with before. saw something, and I did not look into it in detail, but it was someone posted, and I, I guess Twitter has certain guidelines. Mm-hmm. They don't allow certain, like you can't threaten people on Twitter. Sure. And someone had posted, sure well, can't. since uh, <laughs> if Trump's threatening to uh, bring <laughs> fire and fury, shouldn't, shouldn't Twitter be canceling his account now? That sounds like a threat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, Facebook, you know, I mean, I think they should have responded much earlier <laughs> than they did. Uh-huh. Um, and they probably didn't for financial reasons. Um, but now they have that option of reporting an, a news article, again, in quotes, <laughs> that yeah. you see in your news feed and report it as possibly a fake story. And they will, if they get enough reports and they look into it you know certain domains will get flagged and you just can't share the stories from these confirmed fake websites and so they're starting to respond to it i hope so i mean i have i mean i have bigger i have other concerns here as well because you have you have facebook which had an impact on the rec- the most recent election one way or the other because of the biased methods they used to determine what is published to your wall right uh, also, Mark Zuckerberg has been thinking about maybe running for president or whatever he's doing. So there's this almost circular like, well, they have a they are the social media websites are p- 
part of are involved in this propaganda operation. They have financial incentives to be involved, but I'm, I'm saying moral in quotes, moral reasons not to be involved or have made at least some efforts to distance themselves from their role in being propaganda. And at the same time, the individuals who uh, benefit the most from these social media websites have intra government interests are used both monetarily and for Mark Zuckerberg, I guess maybe running his the you know potentially as a political platform. Yeah, it's this like horrible rat's nest of money. <laughs> yeah, money and propaganda and political interests that are almost impossible to separate out. <laughs> Everybody's frowning and making a and making a thoughtful face. Yes, uh, I, I uh, remember in our last episode. I said I wanted to bring forward. I wanted to make sure that in every episode, and this mm -hmm. one in particular, because both these movies were one hundred percent white. There were oh, yeah. people of color in these movies, so we need to talk about a journalist of color. Sure. Um, and so I did a little bit of research, and this, I I found. Ida B. Wells, mm -hmm. who was a journalist in the late 1800s. She was born a slave like a couple years before the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, her parents were slaves. She uh, had a campaign against lynching. There was a period of time, I don't know if it was during the Reconstruction or just after, where mm -hmm. there was a huge number of lynchings. Sure. Um, and they, they, the argument that they used was that Primarily, the argument they used was that black men rape white women, and then we lynch them, and yeah. the government was okay with that. They would allow people to be just taken out of the prison where they were being held for mm. some crime or other, and they no one was ever prosecuted, right? So, so, so it, at this time, the government was supporting white supremacy. Is I'm saying the, lo the local government. Okay. Local government. I'm using that to tie into maybe what's happening possibly right, right now if I looked on Twitter. No, you're right, for sure. Um, so she decided, and what was, what was, don't say I, don't funny. Know if, I was going to say interesting, <laughs> yeah. but I don't even know if that's the right word. Yeah. What did you notice? Um, this wasn't something that just white people bought into. Also black people or you know, like the, the leaders of black communities bought mm -hmm. this argument as well until Ida B. Wells, her friend from, I think it might've been from her hometown. He owned a grocery store with two other men. The People's Grocery, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. uh, he was lynched. The argument was that they had attacked some people. But what it, what it actually was, was another grocer, a white grocer, didn't like the competition. And so they went there with guns to arrest these men who didn't know this was going to happen. And they fired back. Oh, and they geez. ended up lynching these three men. I don't know if it was immediate. I can't remember if it was immediate or if they were in jail. And then they lynched them. Sure. Uh, but she said that... I know this guy. That's not what happened. And so she right. investigated it. If this was the beginning of her investigative journalism career. Mm -hmm. She investigated it and determined that this was an economically uh, an economically what's the motivated. word motivated, you know, crime. Yeah. Of course nobody was ever prosecuted for it. Mm -hmm. And then she started looking into other lynchings and finding that a lot of them were economically motivated definitely not no one was raped this wasn't right. you know these stories were just wrong yeah it was a excuse to murder people yeah it was an excuse to murder people and you know and not get prosecuted for it the mm -hmm. lynchings were 
basically no trial, you just were murdered and nothing came of it. No one yeah. came after you. There was a story where there were like 13 witnesses, 13 black witnesses were in a courtroom getting yeah. ready to testify. They were all killed. They were all yeah. murdered. Um, and she exposed it. As a result of her stories, because one of the other things that she exposed was that when there were liaisons between black men and white women, they were mostly consensual. These were not crimes. Sure. Um, but the white men did not appreciate her saying that and yeah. defaming, in quotes, white women. Mm -hmm. And so while she was gone, I think she was in Philadelphia. She was on tour, giving a lecture tour, or doing some kind of, you know. Yeah. Uh, they destroyed the... the um, the newspaper that she worked for Oof. and so she couldn't and she couldn't go back there because they were going to you know she would probably be killed yeah i think it might have been at that i don't remember if that was when she was in memphis there was also a point when she was living in memphis and writing things she i i don't remember the, precisely the details but at some point she she said we're not safe here that might have actually happened in memphis but basically she wrote a story saying we're not safe here, we should leave. And like 6,000 people left. Wow. And then they also boycotted like the trams, mm -hmm. you know, the transportation system, which was a big economic, uh, had a large economic effect on the business. Yeah. So basically she waged really powerful campaigns. She also helped found the NAACP. She was also a suffragette. Hey, tying all our stuff together. <laughs> yeah. I have, I have like three different things I want to talk about. Um, I'm going to say one till a little later so we can cut it out if it's not relevant. There's a, a local journalist, Ijeoma Aluo, mm -hmm. um, who has recently run smack dab into the social media issues that we're bringing up. Not to mention some of the just general issues with uh, people in underrepresented groups having a say in journalism and having a voice in, like, a, a newspaper. I don't know how to say journalism. An article had been published in the local newspaper, The Stranger. Uh, well, there's two articles that, that came <laughs> in issue. One was Mayor Ed Murray's response to child abuse allegations. I'll surprise this in the spotlight. <laughs> he, was, he published a basically op-ed saying, I didn't do this. The people who did this. Uh, who are we should probably give a little background in case somebody listening is not from around here. Gotcha. So our current mayor, Ed Murray, who is at the end of his term, during the, well, we're currently in the midst of an election for the next mayor. During sort of the run-up to this election, a article was published in, was it the Times? Some allegations surfaced and a lawsuit had begun against the mayor for abusing two i think it was originally two men uh when they were teens when murray was a counselor at a like abuse center in was it in oregon mm -hmm. um this because there was partly because it was an election and partly just because he's the mayor this became a, a big story um allegations kind of went back and forth with investigations about whether this was true or not and Initially, what I remember, the initial allegations was there was a police report that was buried related to this. Um, but ultimately, Mayor Murray published an op-ed in The Stranger saying, I didn't do this. 
um, these men are criminals and we need to move forward. Um, and Ijeoma Luo wrote, responded to this and, and another article basically saying, you should not give a abuser or a potential abuser a platform to call out people he potentially abused because basically because he's in a position of power don't give him additional positions of power to potentially dismiss a, the few abused people who come forward um, as a result she left the stranger uh, she's been harassed pretty significantly on social media this has been followed up with a recent tweet she had about cracker about Was the restaurant the cracker, cracker barrel barrel, cracker with, barrel is a cheese shop no it's no. a restaurant it's not it's, it's like a, a it's buffet. not cracker barrel no it's a, it's, it's no. a restaurant a lot in the midwest it's i don't it's even like know like an old country buffet is. sort yeah, like, of okay but minus the buffet <laughs> yes huh. um she tweeted that her tweet was basically, I don't think these people, I, you know, I'm scared these people won't let, you know, me, a black person, out of here. Uh, and she, this tweet got picked up and reposted on Breitbart or some right-wing, super right-wing website. People started tweeting her, I'm going to kill you, or I'm going to rape you, or I'm coming after you. You're such uh, a reverse racist. You're a racist. You're the one doing racism here. Uh, she started tweeting back saying, hey, Twitter, where, where are you at with this? Uh, she started posting the racist tweets and stuff to her Facebook, and Facebook blocked her from Facebook for several days for posting racist uh, stuff. She then had to publish an article about this. Somebody from Facebook reached out to her and said, oh, we're so sorry, we're learning. Um, but it's been this ongoing combination of journalism, a person of color who's had her views dismissed and the sort of financial and social media forces crushing out her <laughs> some of her voice as well um, but it has been an ongoing ongoing thing as of right now I think it's still ongoing Nicole had posted an article about this on her Facebook and got some right wing leaving <laughs> people who came in to say that actually she was the real racist and I love the fact that someone who says I feel like I may be in danger going into this restaurant that people here might want to try to hurt me draws the response of I no you're wrong you. and i want to hurt you now yeah. <laughs> the, the classic false equivalency narrative is can you imagine if the situation was reversed what if she was a white woman who walked into a predominantly black restaurant and said the same thing people would decry it as racism so why is this any different yeah. as if it you know it ignores the entire history right. of why like she the, might have a fear i like the fact of being concerned about violence to you and people saying you're just a racist. Now I would like to kill you or rape you. And yes. Yeah. It's like, well, it's, that, that's kind of what you were saying. <laughs> yeah. It is hypocritical, I would say. Sure. Um, yeah. It's It's been horrible watching that. She's an excellent local journalist. I'd recommend you follow her on Twitter. Read her read her stuff. She's great. Mom's rolling her eyes at the bird yeah. tweeting throughout I, this. I feel like I should, for anybody out there who has a parent, uh, All of our parrot fans. <laughs> <laughs> and who, who is concerned with Trila's screaming right now. Um, she is very upset because she's all by herself and she mm -hmm. can hear us in the other room. She wants us to go in there and pay attention to her. Do so. they have a secret underground Jimmy Buffett fan following? <laughs> <laughs> all the fans of parrots and movies <laughs> listening faithfully. I did want to say I had read, I had read an article 
that's just making her more upset. I had read an article about how Facebook's, um, I'm getting in trouble with words today, Facebook's Algorithm? Algorithm for hey, how they choose. Yeah, she. That was amazing. <laughs> um, how they decide when something should be banned or not, and mm-hmm. how it favors basically fi- favors white men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Well, and I think that was what the problem was: is there was an organized campaign to harass her, and they all went and reported the posts she had on Facebook. And so Facebook didn't actually look at their content; they just looked at the number of objections to this content and froze her account one and suspended of, her. One of, the face, one of Facebook's reasons that they said they had uh, blocked her, the, the representative, was that she posted people's personal information by reposting these things that they'd sent her, and that is against the Facebook terms of service to share this information without permission. Um, Which is fascinating to me. I mean, yeah, it's doxing, I suppose yes. is what they called it, even though it's not. She didn't reveal any personal information about them other than their name, which already is public on Facebook. And, and these people are not her friends, obviously. Oh, and they submitted that information to a journalist willingly. So, yeah. I don't know. It was sort of a cop-out mm-hmm. response. It was very, very, very poorly handled on their part. And Facebook has had a history of poorly handling... Yeah. Let's, let's select all, that guy president. All kinds of... <laughs> and not just... Racial issues, not just, I mean. Whatever you want, man. Yeah, they, they've had a history of poorly handling anything regarding control or rejecting what people put up. They've never had a good handle on that. Have you ever reported something? I've, I've done it many times. Probably, but I, it would I be so rare. It would be immensely rare. Very inconsistent responses from Facebook. Um, sometimes they'll say, you're right, this violated community standards, mm-hmm. and they've taken it down, or, oh, it's already been removed by the user, nothing for us to investigate. But about, it's about 60-40. 60% of the time they just say, we understand that this might be upsetting to you, but it doesn't violate our standards. When it's very clearly, you know, I'll report people who have, um, you know, one of the most blatant violations is not using your real name on mm. Facebook. That's one of their terms of agreement. So people who post, you know, really bigoted things and have the name, like, Pepe the Frog. Yeah. This guy is not <laughs> Pepe the Frog. And so I'll report that, and they'll just dismiss it. And it's very clearly that this person is violating you know, terms of service, but they won't address it. And so I'm not entirely sure how that review process works. It seems very inconsistent to me. It is a, to me, it's a very ugly combination of the capitalist and financial reasons to like not try that hard and not hire a lot of people to do this, and a you know, a industry that is predominantly white male who probably have a perspective on where free speech and uh, silencing outside views intersect. And that, to me, that comes across pretty clearly in their enforcement policies and in the amount of resources they would be willing to dedicate to cleaning up the shit. Yeah. I mean, that's... That's a money loser. There's no... There's no money in... To be made in deleting people's posts. <laughs> yeah, there's no money to be made in stopping outrage. I well, mean, they, want, they want the engagement, and yeah. unfortunately one of the new things that their algorithm does on public posts is um, they no longer do posts chronologically for the responses. Mm-hmm. They start with the top comments. So uh, 
for lack of a better word, trolls who mm-hmm. want to inflame and want to sort of detract from conversation will go and say something inflammatory, and naturally people feel like they need to respond to this. And because it has so many right engagements, it goes right to the top, um, when it should just rightfully be ignored. And So that's something they probably need to work on as well. Mm-hmm. The comments, I find them mind-boggling, because when you have a lot of comments on something, like it's like a thousand comments, it's like... Well, why do you think you're being heard in this in this mass of responses? What is what are you getting out of posting this response? This you know whatever your anger or sometimes it'll just be a stupid sarcastic remark mm-hmm. and a lull to something serious and it's like what are you're getting something from this? This is giving you some kind of emotional feedback. They like they like to for, again for lack of a better word to trigger people. They like the response. They like the anger that it generates. They like the attention. They like detracting from an actual conversation. That's why on the post <laughs> that you referenced earlier that I did, I have yeah. a few friends like that. I, again, use friends <laughs> this term. Nicole and gets I, a lot of comments on her newspaper articles. And there's, there's a few that I just don't engage with anymore yeah. um, because I can tell the difference between when they actually have a thoughtful response to something and when they're just looking to provoke yeah. <laughs> anger. And they got their talking points lined exactly. up already, and so they so might as well throw them out. Of, I know that it makes them angrier if I don't respond, if I just sort of roll my eyes and think, you know, try harder to troll me. Yeah. Come up with something <laughs> new that I haven't heard before. I, I want to add one more thing about the, the Twitter aspect of this, which is one of the reasons that the thousands of Russian bots may not have been cleared up because they are found out is that Twitter relies on outside funding and one of the metrics by which they can judge their success is how many active users they have. Mm-hmm. So today, I mean, this is the this is the plot of Silicon Valley what season two <laughs> is there is a financial benefit to have a lot of fake users to your service because it makes it look very popular. And if it really counts for 12%, that's 12% more. That's a large percentage. Think about how many, you can sell that to advertisers. Look at how many people will look at your ad about Breitbart News when if all of them are robots, that makes no difference to any of the people involved in this process. But that's a double-edged sword for them as well, because when <laughs> people find a way to spot this, their advertising revenue could dry up because mm-hmm. they say, we're not actually reaching anyone who will purchase our products because they're not real people. I kind of had a weird idea about what you just said. So mm-hmm. Twitter thinks that 12% is super is important, right? Sure. Why doesn't a 12% Hispanic population, why isn't that important? I mean, it's just as I had said earlier, you know, the population of Boston is about 12%. Why aren't they as important as 12% of Twitter followers? I mean, if you wanted to ask my opinion, I don't think Twitter uh, cares. I think that they are, again, that the money and the white male cross-section here also hits on a where our service is... Not, it's not not a, available to you, but they're not. I mean, Twitter is not marketed to people of color. If it was, abuse would be something that they would consider because there's right. a huge white, white right wing, oh, not even right wing. There's a huge neo Nazi alt right contingent on Twitter. They're not hard to pick out. You <laughs> when you see them post, they're not secretive about it. That their behavior and their existence on that platform uh, is. Sends takes people out of that process that could otherwise be users. I mean, not to defend Twitter or anything, but relative to other media forms, it's still in its infancy. You know, yeah. it's, um, 
still coming around to how it wants to be a, as a business, how what its model is. Um, I mean, if you look at what's important in terms of uh, monetization, a lot of older media things like television programming have realized what an important audience that is and have made a concerted effort. Um, I kind of wish this had been for <laughs> more noble reasons, but yeah. for financial reasons to cast more, um, you know, Latinx representation and um, have those kind of actors in certain roles that mm-hmm. are up front or um, are showrunners and big names and things like that. So it's it's getting there, but it is for financial reasons and not for actual representation. But that's, I mean, that does, that is what it's been forever, like, that's why we had black exploitation films is mm-hmm. because of the migration of whites out of the city, changing the demographic mm-hmm. that was going to movies. So they started making those movies. They were black exploitation, unfortunately. I mean, why weren't they like a movies with good plots? And I mean, well, I like black exploitation. There's also understand. still the ingrained sort of prejudices in the show and the uh, heads of these studios and what they think attracts an audience. You know, there's, just in terms of gender equality as well, you know, both um, racial issues and gender issues in terms of what they think will be a box office straw. And no matter how many times they're sort of proven wrong in terms of who they think will attract an audience, there's still a hesitation to put any actual um, energy or resources into developing more projects Mm -hmm. with persons of color at the forefront or women at the forefront. You know, you have things that have proven them wrong, like the Ghostbusters movie or uh, Bridesmaids and now Wonder Woman. Um, And... Tyler Perry movies are always a hit. Uh, what, what's <laughs> um, the one out right now? Get Out um, was a huge girls, hit. Girls Weekend? Girls, girls Night. Girl, no, not Girls Night. Something like Girls Queen, Weekend. Girls Weekend Out? Girls yeah. Weekend out, something which like that. is like, was the top huge, movie for three weeks hits. running. Um, and again, sort of are dismissed um, by studios as flukes and mm-hmm. not, you know, indicative of a pattern. And so hopefully, I don't know. I don't know what it'll take to change their mind. We had talked a little bit about that in our last episode of season one because it was we had watched four movies by women um and the fact that and i had heard this on a podcast i was listening to earlier today not about women but about people of color where you know that you've reached some level of equality when you can fail when when you can fail just like any white person can and still get you still have people giving you money to make movies. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's blamed on the story and not because of your gender or your race. Right. Mm-hmm. Or you were successful one time, so you could be successful mm-hmm. again and we'll, we'll give you another chance. But it doesn't work that way for women and people of color. I mean, and I try to make a concerted effort to um, watch shows that I find represent me. Oh, I should probably mention to the audience that I am a person of color. <laughs> um, and so I... Um, jokingly always say that I'm an M. Night Shyamalan apologist <laughs> will always go see any of his films. Because but he's back on top there. <laughs> yeah. Again. So, <laughs> ah, I win. <laughs> I <was really> <laughs> you were a fan before it was cool. Yeah, and I like, you know, seeing Priyanka Chopra and Quantico and, you know, things like that. Mal Nanji, I'm going to go see The Big Sick. And yeah. Support him. And oh, yeah. We've, talked about, <laughs> we've talked about The Good Wife so many times. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I just, I, I find it a personal responsibility to support people from my when they get their <laughs> opportunities. When they get their shot. Yeah. So. I was going to say, oh no, now I'm blanking on the thought I was going to have <laughs> about Twitter. Hold on, give me a second. Uh, I don't know where I was. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I will. I will come back. All right. I want to put a little break here for one second because I have a topic I want to talk about. But if it's stupid, we should just remove it from the podcast. Have you guys heard about the show Confederate? I yes. want to bring that up because it is related to the oh, some boy. of the stuff okay. we talk. Dad, are oh, you familiar yes. with oh, Confederate? Oh yeah, the one where it's the alternative history. What if the Wait, South had won? But there is another show. Um, There's one that didn't get picked up. Is oh, is there the one where about where the during the reconstruction they actually get their forty acres? Oh yeah, room? I can't remember yes. the name. Of it. it's uh, Black, Black America. America. Yeah, right? yeah. Did that not get picked up? Is that I don't the one know. that didn't get picked up? So, to the listener, Confederate is a the new show announced by HBO from the Game of Thrones creators. It is going to be their next project. HBO announced this, I think, to try and drum up, because it's not even in production yet, but, like, we came up with this. Everybody get ready, where if they, what if the South had won the Civil War alternative history take, uh, which got a lot of backlash for being very ill-conceived and a bad idea, and that these creators have had a bad track record and are both white men. You're combining the uh, man in the high castle with the, the white supremacist demographic? That's a, it's like a it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which has gotten, I would say, fairly reamed uh, across the board for being like, unlike man in the high castle, we haven't, you have the, you know, America has not finished litigating white supremacy or the Confederacy in the U.S. We are currently, as of right now, dealing with violence against people of color for removing Confederate monuments. Uh, we're, this is not like, oh, what if the Nazis had won? The Nazis do not run Germany right now. Right. Um, they had talked. They talked about this on with friends like these, the, pod, yeah. the Crooked Media podcast. And, you know, she basically had pointed out that in German, German soldiers were tried for their war crimes. Yeah. They're not, you're not allowed. It's a crime to do the Sieg Heil uh, salute in Germany. Yes. There's no statues of Hitler downtown Berlin. Right. There was a story that came out today about an American tourist doing it in Germany and um, a patron at a restaurant where people see him sort of attacked him. Yeah, I heard this. <laughs> Good. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. So basically, yeah, we're not in this. It, we didn't address our issues the way that Germany addressed their issues. Well, just let the dog go. Okay. It's fine. Um, the Civil War isn't over here. Yeah. We didn't finish it, and there are people still trying to win. Yeah, we are still, liter- right now, as of today, literally fighting it, but generally just litigating and dealing with the out results of it and people run on the platform of states of self will rise again and uh whatever the heritage or whatever the phrase turn of phrase is here that's coded i'm i'm into the south and the confederacy for southern pride yeah southern pride um it's our history we're still i mean there are members of our government tweeting about that and talking about that today about how it's our History and yada, yada, yada. It's amazing whenever I see people defending the Confederate flag as a symbolism of their Southern pride. And I never see these same people flying their state flag. You know, it's it's never about their actual no. Southern roots. It's what the flag stands for. It's, it's representative. And, you know, it is it is appalling. <laughs> but it, to me, this, this the I want to bring up Confederate because it ties into kind of our movies podcasts and the political 
you know, world in which we live now, but it also to me is representative of you've got sort of this right wing, alt right side of, of racism and what's going on. But I, you also have HBO, which I would consider as the, who I'm sure consider to be liberal left and their feelings on white supremacy and these issues, which is kind of like, well, we got, we got two black writers and we promise it'll be a great show. So tune in and we're going to do a good job. There's no, we have no track record to support this, but here's a pile of money to develop this idea. It's the worst idea. I mean, that, I mean that's, <laughs> that was my, I mean, that's my immediate response is like, you, you blew my mind with how terrible an idea you just <laughs> announced. This isn't the time for that. There is no time for that. Just shut up and stop just doing do something this. something else. <laughs> it's, it's the, yeah, it's the television development equivalent of somebody like, doing a 9-11 joke the day after the towers crash or something where you go, no, this, it's or too soon. Or as the planes are crashing. Right, right. Yeah. No, no, this is too soon. You can't... But <laughs> I mean, the just, right just the idea that they thought this was an alternate history means that I don't trust <laughs> their right. handling of the subject matter. If they can't even we don't. recognize that it's right. still We're an like, issue and not alternate. Right. Then... All the things that... Almost everything that oppressed black people before the Emancipation Proclamation, with the one exception, they are not literally enslaved anymore. Yeah. They all exist. Unless you count the prison system. Right. Well, I, yeah. They're not, by those same terms, right. enslaved. And that is, that is how narrow of a line you have to draw to make a... And, and when you're talking about an alternate history, where I assume it takes place in the present day, mm-hmm. aside from that, the there will be slave, enslaved black characters. What other stuff are you going to see that would be like, oh, that would never happen today? It feels like it's going to be trauma porn. Right. Just, you know, trying to provoke sort of a visceral, you know, response, which is sad because the things that they could show, things like lynchings and yeah. and executions of innocent, you know, persons of color are happening right. like right. you don't need a fantasy show to depict these yeah. things if it's something you'd like to depict this is the news i mean in the with friends like these episode they talk about like game of thrones has had a very bad track record mm-hmm. depicting people of color and depicting rape and that is guaranteed to be front and center more so on this new show they're pitching uh, and they have no track record showing that they're comp- even even minimally competent. They don't brush this stuff under the rug. They've used it as a tactic to sell their show. And the idea that they would somehow then take a 180 turn and now be competent to handle these subjects. Yeah, is... there's nothing there's nothing good about this. There's nothing there's no virtue <laughs> in this idea. There's no virtue in it. Yeah. It has no purpose. And I think one of the frustrations that people had on top of all these other concerns (laughs) was that um, when they announced this uh, sort of inception of this idea Mm -hmm. was on the heels of a uh, show that was produced by John Legend being, um, well, not canceled, but it wasn't picked up. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, they had a second season sort of filmed and there's just no venue for it of sort of um, a show that's about the Underground Railroad and, and oh, is that the, characters. Yeah. yeah, I think it's called Underground. Yeah. 
So it was sort of like, we have a show. <laughs> if somebody <laughs> would like, HBO, if you would like to pick this up and air, a, you know, sort of respectful examination of this history, we've got a show for you already. I mean, you could do even even stupid crap. I would give HBO the, this, the tiniest amount of credit for these two not competent uh, showrunners. If they're like, we want to do a show about the South during the Civil War, that to me would be at least slightly more respectful because I could be like, well, maybe they'll do a good job depicting what actually happened, not an alternate history. Right. This is one step even beyond two, two idiots trying to do something that they're not competent of doing in a defensive way where they're like, oh, but also we're taking this into the future to see what it would be like. It's like, there's no, I have no interest in any of this. This it is was such a, a bad idea. All I can imagine is a bunch of white guys in a room saying, well, we've got The Handmaid's Tale and we've got... What are people into right now? Right. What are people into right now? Well, what if we do that, only we do it with, I don't know, slavery? Yeah. I really do think they were cribbing Man of the High Castle mm-hmm. because right. of how successful it was. Yeah. And Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, yeah, like... Yeah, and um, this sort of comes around the same time as uh, Sophia um, Coppola's movie, The Guild, had similar criticisms about, uh, you know, that time period and yeah. whitewashing its story and making it all about... Um, the white women's trauma and erasing any persons of color from the original story that it was based on. Yeah. When it's about slavery <laughs> and that time period. Yeah, it's a. I don't know. I wanted to bring that up because it's it's media. It's it's the the topics we cover and also it's just appalling. Just come on, come on, HBO, just do, do a better. different show. Just go come do a press release that says, "Whoops, we goofed. We're gonna do a different show." Well, and their response was just watch the first episode and trust us and hey. you know, like reserve judgment until you see it. And I think a lot of consumers are smart enough to say, there's nothing we need to see. <laughs> when I close my eyes and picture the ideal episode, it's still bad. Yeah. So right. let's not watch it. Yeah. Even if the script was great, all the acting was spectacular. The filmography, you know, the cinematography was spectacular. The soundtrack was great. It would still be the worst idea of all time. <laughs> and it's, and by the way, None of that's going to, that is not going to happen. None of those things are going to fall into place. Some of them will fall into place. Well, okay. So let, I'm just going to liken it to Birth of a Nation, right? Yeah. And we, a film was made in 1915, I think, mm-hmm. uh, in support of the Ku Klux Klan. It's considered a great film in terms of the cinematography mm-hmm. and advances in filmmaking, and it had its own soundtrack, a silent film. Yeah. It's terrible. It's a horrible film. It shows terrible things. It's extremely racist. It's not a great film, and it doesn't get a pass. And this show, even before it's created, it's not going to get a pass. You don't you don't watch Birth of a Nation nowadays or ever and come out of it being like, oh, I learned something. It's, it's not like it's, oh, it's depicting these terrible things, but, you know. Well, I sort of learned something. I learned how terrible B.W. <laughs> Griffith is. Yeah, you didn't. <laughs> But to me, I mean, to me, this the Confederate thing is also just an a example of the like Hollywood, like that the what would be considered liberal film industry, what their impression of what and and you know what they consider what would be appropriate, but also like a hot button issue. What what, what could what's a really strong pitch for us? And it's like, but oh man, this is this is bad. No matter where you are. But isn't it the same thing as, like, Twitter? That's sort of the same argument. They're driven by money. I don't know. 
So, you know, being being liberal is not their highest I guess calling. They no, want to make all the money they can. <laughs> to me it's just this is the it's not like I can look at the alt right and all this stuff and be like, okay, but I can get a little solace from you know, the the groups that I, I align with. It's like, no, not really. The, the film industry and the movie industry and all this stuff is it's slightly better, but it's full of the same systemic problems that you just see everywhere. Yeah. You want to talk about a cocktail? Do you want to talk about a cocktail or you want to talk about our next episode? I want to do the cocktail first. All right. So this cocktail. Talk about the cocktail. (laughs) (laughs) Yummy. Uh, Cocktail was, I'm calling it a Douglas Fairbanks Jr. for these reasons. (laughs) Um, There was actually a drink called a Douglas Fairbanks that was uh, created in 1933, I believe, which uh, is a, a, drink that in, contains gin, apricot brandy, hmm. uh, something. I can't remember. What, I might be lime. I think it's lime. And then an egg white. Hmm. That sounds okay. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. We, I've made I one, so we're going to taste it. So for that reason, this drink has an egg white in it, which makes it kind of creamy. You didn't get the egg white. I didn't white. get the I egg white, so I don't know. Um, it just it changes the texture a little bit. It makes it a little more um, creamy. Yeah. yeah. gives it a little, And it has a little bit of white foam on the top. Yeah. Yeah. And then the the, uh, the the garnish that I put with, with, with it was mm. uh, Boston brown bread. So Boston, right? <gasps> oh. <laughs> but also, uh, it is Douglas Fairbanks Jr.'s recipe for Boston brown bread. Oh, okay. And so I wanted to pair that with something. Where so did you find his recipe? It's online. Huh. Both, the, both the recipes for the Douglas Fairbanks drink, the cocktail name for his father, and the Boston brown bread recipe are bread on the line. for his son. Well, no, it's his <laughs> recipe. Right. Is his name Boston or what's yeah. his son's <laughs> uh, It was like from a cookbook of celebrity recipes. Huh. Um, so I made that and then I wanted to make a drink that kind of would go with Boston brown bread. So it has molasses and whiskey and uh, lime in it. So the brown bread is like a little tiny, almost like a little brownie bite. Did you make a big sheet of them and cut little side? How did you make the... I well here I took a I took a chance and I made it in my sous vide mm-hmm. because yeah. the way that you actually make Boston brown bread normally it's cooked in like a coffee can and then you steam it you put it in a pot of water and you steam it for like three hours okay. and I thought oh sous vide isn't that's practically the same thing so I made us kind of a small batch a small recipe and I used put them in jars mm-hmm. like fruit candy jars. luckily I didn't overfill the jars one. because the stuff expanded <laughs> when I thought I was super scared I put it in the water and you could see bubbles being forced out I'm like mm, what's happening <laughs> it and it's super out. hot it's like 190 degree water so you can't like can't pop it out so then I was afraid after I took it out what's going to happen when I open these jars but it's, it's okay when it worked out as long as you don't overfill them it's fine right don't but, fill them more than two-thirds full but they're you know yeah, cute. Imagine a cute little jelly jar, like you have for a relatively small yeah. container of homemade jam or jelly. Only it's got brown bread a in it. A little brown bread. It was delicious. And the jar is greased, so you just turn it upside down, give it a thump, and help plops this little round uh, yeah. roll of bread. The <laughs> Very um, sweet. The hard sauce on top. I just added that because it seemed like a good idea. It was a good idea. The cocktail was really delicious. I thought it smelled weird. <laughs> I think <laughs> actually, yeah. I think the egg white version actually probably smells better. Yeah, it has molasses in it, which is really strong flavor, and I had to keep cutting it down right. uh, as I was working on the recipe. As as her chief taster, as she was working on the recipe, it went from being 
too sweet, too sticky, too molassesy mm-hmm. sweet. Yeah. You know, molasses is sweet, but it has a super strong, strong flavor. Yeah. yeah. And you cut it, and it's like, oh, this is a little better than the other one. And then you cut it some more, and it's like, oh, that's even better than the last one. Oh, this one's even better. <laughs> and as I was cutting down the molasses, I was upping the lime juice to sort of get it more mm-hmm. balanced. So I was going to ask you, Dad, since you have been the unofficial taster of almost every drink we've ever had, mm-hmm. which one's your favorite? Oh, that's a good question. Because a lot of them, they're all very cocktail-y kind of drinks, number one. I mean, they're not... I don't know what that means. Oh, they're not, um, they're not daiquiris and gimlets. You know, they're not super sweet or super sour. They're that... Yeah, they're, they're alcohol flavor. They're Manhattan or martini. Right. Or, yeah, they're more of a yeah. Manhattan or martini style drink. Um, so to a great extent, and some of them have been relatively, well, like a, I think like a lot of good cocktails, they're not, they don't hit you in the face with, oh, this is the sour drink, or mm. this is the sweet drink, or this is the coconut fruit drink. So that's flavors are kind of subtle. And as a result, it's kind of like, oh, I don't know that I can say, oh, this one's my favorite. It's because you know, you like them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're good. And they all, I think you kind of like depend on your mood. I think maybe the Rosemary Baby which you can remember because I made it last you night. Just made it yesterday. Maybe <laughs> by, I'm, I, I don't remember that one at all. Recency no. bias. This because does, it has a really interesting play. I mean, it's not like It's the one the tequila most. drink that I've made so far, oh. and it has tomatoes and parsley in it. Yes. As it's a, well. It is a savory drink, and you don't run into that very often. It's uh, It has salt in it. It has yeah. salt, parsley, tomatoes, and a simple syrup made with jalapenos and rosemary. Can you make that again and call it something else? <laughs> yeah, Nicole <laughs> wants to try that one. <laughs> well, and what she made it originally, the garnish, uh-huh. all I had yesterday was some pickles and stuff. Oh, <laughs> the garnish is insane. The garnish is a little cheese baby, a little oh, baby man. made out of cheese with little eyeballs. <laughs> that is one thing that's going to be a little sad for this season. It's going to be a lot harder for me to come up with Goofy garnishes. I'm waiting for a tiny American flag. Right. right. <laughs> well, which one? Made out of one? something. Yeah. Made out of something. It's really pretty too because the parsley gets turned yeah, into little, little bits there's of little flecks of parsley floating on top after yeah. you muddle the the stuff. Right. It sounds like a breakfast cocktail, like a mm-hmm. right. 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 Bloody Mary. Yeah. It's more, kind of a cross a, between a margarita and a Bloody Mary. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's more, <laughs> yeah. It's Bloody Mary. That would be the thing. I wasn't thinking that. That is that would be in the same family. I don't think I've ever seen you drink a Bloody Mary, Dad. So I, I've only had one, I think, in my life. Really? Yeah. Is it that same one that I had? The I've only had one, and it was the last time we. What had is one up with you guys? Las They're Vegas. tasty. Had yeah. you had yeah. one before no, that? No, that was it. Because oh, <laughs> I've never had one. I don't I like tomato had, juice. So. See, I kind of. I can. I like tomato juice. Yeah, me too. And I'd never had one. I was like, you know what? This is my opportunity. I'm gonna. You should. Dad, any day's your opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, oh, well, why not? Um. It's not something I've like, oh, I've had this crying desire. <laughs> more tomato juice in your life. Right. More, I need more tomato juice alcohol for the, suitable for a Sunday brunch. Okay. But it, yeah, it is, it's in the Bloody Mary family, put it that way, in terms of how the flavors work. That's the, yeah, that's the description. All There's right. our answer. I was curious. Actually, before we do the next episode, we should do plugs so that people can't skip over this. Sorry, jerks. <laughs> Mom, what are you plugging this week? What am I plugging? Oh, if darn it all. I was going to plug... Oh, I'm going to plug a, a podcast completely unrelated to us, except that I've been listening to a lot of their episodes. What's that? It's called Backstory. Okay. It is uh, three or four historians, depending on the episode. It's the same people mm-hmm. every week, but they're not always all there. And they do segments that are related to what's happening in the news right now, yeah. except that they talk about historical... Uh, precedents i guess things that happened in history 
that are related or similar to what's happening right now. One of the one of the saddest ones that we heard we when we were driving through Chelan, we listened to one where they talked about John Henry. Mom's saying we, but I think she means her and my uh, Yeah. <laughs> I was not in the car, no. so Although I don't think you, Nicole was there. Either. Although you were also driving to Chelan <laughs> yeah, at the same time. Listening to a different podcast. Uh, but, there in spirit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. no, it was me and your dad and Bella and Maggie were in the car. Yeah. Um, and we listened to this episode and they talked about John Henry. And you learn the origin of that song, and it was very sad. It was an extremely sad story yeah, about... John Henry was a real person. He was a real mm-hmm. person. He was not tall. He was like five feet one or something. He was a very small man. He was basically, he was a prisoner. He was, uh, he was in prison. They were using prison labor to do a type of mining that would basically kill you. Hmm. Um, and then they had buried like 200 bodies outside the prison of these Yeesh. people they had used for mining purposes. And the reason it would kill you wasn't it? It was the danger. It was the shards. Right? No, it was the shards of metal that would go into your lungs would eventually, oh, okay. you would eventually what die. What were they mining? Oh, it was they were, uh, not railroad, mining, sorry. Railroad tunnels. Building railroad tunnels. Oh, okay. And yeah. what he did, or that, you know, that where they're driving spikes. Yeah. Which is never clear. You always see like pictures and it's like someone whacking on a railroad track. But yeah. what they were doing is drilling the holes that you stick the dynamite in to blow up. Mm. You know, to create rubble that you then empty out to build the tunnel. Yeah. That was his... That must have been the... It was an episode about incarceration, I believe. All of the, you know, all the segments were about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they'd ended up with the story about the... What, what's the name of that circular prison? Oh, shoot. The op... Oh, the Panopticon. Pan- yeah. Panopticon. Yeah. I that in law school. Was <laughs> a, which they just closed one not that long Ooh. ago, and apparently it was horrifying. I didn't know they were still in, a, in yeah. operation. That's hor- That is horrible. Panopticon is a, well, it's a lot of stuff, but in the prison system, it is a prison where you are under, you're visible to all other people at all times. It's basically a big circular room with right. cells on the outside and a guard in the center so that you never have any privacy. It's not good. Both. You have neither privacy from the guards nor privacy from every other inmate because everybody has a clear view into everybody's cell. Yeah. Anyway, I highly recommend that uh, that podcast. It's, it was very cool. It's kind of a mix... I don't know if it's the Memory Palace, uh, which is, you know, history. I think they're the same network as well. Kind of a Memory Palace with an NPR flavor, and at least for one part of it, and then they do different segments that are kind of like a whole different. Save it for your plugs, (laughs) (laughs) Nicole. What are you plugging this week? Um, so uh, there's a show. I believe it's an Amazon original, and it's called Comrade Detective. Oh, I've seen that. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) And it's um a fake found footage uh, show that is sort of communist propaganda about a detective mm-hmm. in Romania um, solving a murder <laughs> yeah. and capitalists are the bad guys and um, it's it's supposed to be uh, it's crazy <laughs> yeah it's, it's found in modern day and the dubbed over the voices into English by Channing Tatum and Joseph Gordon-Levitt mm-hmm. um, the Police chief is uh, uh, Nick Offerman's voice. Mm-hmm. And it's very funny so far. So. They to make this show, they filmed the entire season in the Ukraine with mm-hmm. Ukrainian actors set mm-hmm. in the seventies. I think eighties uh, because it's it's Jordache jeans and Reagan as president and so like it's that, so. it's a very goofy parody, but done with so very much well. so much care, <laughs> too much care. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to plug Third Act Saviors, of course, my other podcast I do with my friends Daniel and Mike. We've been uh, guests on this show. 
As of this recording, our most recent episode released was Life, where we had a guest on, Caroline Riley, their co-host on the Sidekicks podcast, who I was very funny. Uh, we just recorded the episode where we watched The Great Wall, starring Matt Damon, uh, which was stinky and not a good movie. <laughs> well, I talked a little bit in that episode about how we were trying to do all the, the four whitewashed movies, although we'll probably not do Doctor Strange, since I think all of us kind of like that movie. But I imagine Ghost in the Shell is in our future at some point. Um, and because we brought him up a couple times, I love following Ira Madison on Twitter. He's very funny. So follow him, at Ira. He, I forget where he's currently writing. He was an MTV uh, like entertainment arts writer, and now he writes for another outlet. But if you want to see a gay black man's feelings about Confederate or The Beguiled or a bunch of stuff we talked about, he's a very funny writer, and he's very active on Twitter um, with news about nerdy stuff I like. Those are my plugs. All right. What are we watching next time? So, for our next uh, episode, we're going to watch a movie. It's actually the first movie that, uh, the first American movie that Bela Lugosi was in. <gasps> it's called Silent Command. It's about uh, a spy trying to destroy the Panama Canal. Mm. And for our second movie, we're going to watch a movie called The East, which is about a, a woman who it works for a private intelligence agency who is uh, made to infiltrate a group of people who campaign against big businesses. And they are referred to as, uh, this is something I'm going to research mm -hmm. before we watch the episode, but they, there's something called a freeganism, no, I got it wrong. Donut. People no, who are it is freeganism, yeah. Mean, people who basically do not buy anything. Oh, and that is that's what this group is, I guess. We'll find out. Um, so spies in my spies and propaganda. The other cool. the other bit of information about the Bela Lugosi movie is that it was a propaganda film made with the cooperation of the U.S. Navy. Oh, that's interesting. I love spies and spy stuff, so I'll have a lot of stuff I can talk about. And if <laughs> we have a lot of books about spies. If it's a we silent are, movie? it's a silent movie. It's from nineteen twenty three. So we've got two more silent movies coming. Mm -hmm. The fourth episode will also be a silent movie, although it's out of the silent era because we will be moving into the 30s at that point. But this particular movie, for some reason, is a silent movie. We talked about this last episode, but we are doing multiple movies in some of the decades right. just because we got other topics we wanted to talk about. Right, and this, some of these movies, I'm really looking forward to some of the movies. Yeah, same. Um, so this will yeah. be a longer season because there's stuff we specifically wanted to watch. Follow us on iTunes, subscribe, write five stars. Dad, have you reviewed this show five stars on iTunes yet? Well, you really should, and so should our, so should our listeners. It's important. <laughs> right. Hey, thanks for being a guest, Dad. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Appreciated your input on journalism. Yay, the power of the press. Power of the press. Hey, we got one thing out of that movie. We're running out one droplet. Tune in next week. For decades, <laughs> we'll talk about spies. Yeah, let's talk about let's not. Yeah, let's talk about spies and propaganda. Maybe that won't be so bad. If an atomic bomb goes off between now and then, we'll do a different episode. Let's yeah. say that. <laughs> <laughs> Have the same guest, but talk about something else. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot, I forgot. You should have told the story. So I was, I was prepared with all kinds of remarks about investigative reporting and the difficulty of doing that with the current economics of newspapers. But 
Yeah. But I wanted the one story. What's the story? <laughs> we'll edit this back in. Yeah. Is it the copy editor room? Yeah, this is the copy editor table. So Lance had said, oh, I don't know what I can, can contribute. And as soon as that movie started, like right close to the beginning of uh, Spotlight, Spotlight, they're sitting at a table, and he turns to our daughter, Maggie, and he says, do you know what kind of table that is? <laughs> That's a copy editor's table. You know why it's that shape? It's that shape because of, for whatever reason, I don't know. So did she look down from her phone, or was that was interesting? <laughs> so early in the movie, they have a, it's a staff meeting, yeah. and they're in a big conference room, and they're all sitting around an oddly shaped, horseshoe-shaped table. Before computers, it was a copy editor table. Mm-hmm. And it's horseshoe-shaped because you have whoever the editor is in charge of the copy editors. He sits in the slot in the, the center of the horseshoe with all the copy editors arranged around him, and he's the one that handles handing out stories for them to proofread, edit, write headlines for. He sends the story out to them, they mark it up, and then they give it back to him, and he reviews it, and if it, no problems, hands it off. And it, I was like, I like that touch, because it's like, once you move to computers, you don't need to have a group of people working, all sitting around yeah. in an ergonomically designed mm-hmm. table. But of course, if you're a big old institution like the Boston Globe, of course, you still got that big old desk, yeah. and it's going to be sitting in a big old <laughs> conference room, so you would just, you don't just throw it away. Yeah. It's like, oh, so you use it for staff meetings, because why not? Because <laughs> sure, because you got a big room and there's a big table. Yeah, and it reminded me of a journalism professor I had that had talked about working in a Chicago newspaper uh, mm-hmm. daily there, that, and he was a copy editor. And he said it was one of the frustrations because he was brand new to the job. And the guy would throw a piece of paper at you, at a story, and it was on, you know, typed on a sheet of paper, throw it to you, you carefully went through, you found all the mistakes, all the typos, all the grammatical errors, you fix them all, you throw it back and as a new copy editor he said the guy didn't he used a grease pencil a big green grease pencil because he wouldn't write if he, if he saw an error that you missed something he said he just he just put a, a green mark it roughly in the vicinity of one of close to the paragraph where the problem was <laughs> and he wouldn't say anything he just spin it back to you across the table and he talked about sweating bullets as you looked and said well somewhere in these three or four paragraphs i didn't catch something but what is it i gotta find it i gotta find it you think you find it, you send it back, and you'd be like, put another mark on it, and uh, <laughs> throw it back again. Anyway, it was like, oh, copy editor table. Because yeah. that's, that's the kind of editor a... you were. No, no, I just totally rewrote their stuff. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't make, I just scratch it off. Just like in the, 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 the movie, uh, Power of the Press, <laughs> yeah. where the guy has his weather report, and he takes and says, oh, good, yep, this is perfect, and then just cross everything, everything the but, Yeah, the four words. That's, that's the way I did it. <laughs> Awesome. That's, that's the way it's supposed to work. 